Hi everyone, welcome to Ask the Horse Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of thehorse.com. Tonight our topic is understanding horse behavior. Horses are beautiful and amazing and I'm guessing that if you're listening tonight, you completely agree. And that fact that we as humans can convince them to go along with our ideas, like stepping into a metal box and going down the highway at 65 miles an hour, um, shows just how docile they can be. But sometimes horses do kind of weird things, or their behavior can be just plain confusing to us as humans. And because of their size, sometimes these behaviors can become dangerous. Tonight we're joined by Dr. Robin Foster to help She's going to help answer questions about horse behavior and why they do the things they do. Welcome, Dr. Foster. Hi, Michelle. Thanks for inviting me this evening for this live chat on horse behavior. Um, the horse has such a large and diverse audience, and I'm really looking forward to sharing um, some of my interests and perspectives on this topic. I'm super excited to have you here. Uh, some of our listeners might recognize you as our regular uh, commentary writer on thehorse.com about horse behavior. And uh, we get a lot of questions there, but tonight we have a ton of questions to get to. Get, get to. Um, but I want to first have you uh, share with us a little bit about your experience with horse behavior. Um, yeah, I've... Uh been around horses most of my life, like a lot of the listeners, I'm sure. Um, but I didn't start a formal study of horse behavior until I was well into my career. Um, so I, I have, I, I consider my experience to be um, both academic and practical in terms of behavior. On the academic side, um, I have been studying uh, animal behavior for all my life and all my career, and that spans well over 30 years. And the topic of animal behavior includes um, studying biology and psychology and issues related to neuroscience and behavior. Um, so for more than 30 years, I've been studying and teaching and doing research in these areas. Um, it wasn't until about 15 years ago that um, I redirected my research and started to focus on equine behavior. It was a very sharp left turn for me. I had been studying um, smaller animals and uh, focused on brain behavior interactions, um, but my passions were um, definitely with horses and since then I have focused on doing research and um, also consultations on temperament stress and horse-human interactions. Um, a lot of my research has involved selection and retention issues related to working horses, um, primarily in equine-assisted therapy programs. On the practical side, in addition to being a rider, I also um, am an owner-breeder of thoroughbred horses. And um, I stopped teaching about three years ago and have been doing private behavior consultations with horses uh, during that time. And so are you currently affiliated with any universities? Yeah, I'm still affiliated with universities. I have a, um, I'm a professor of animal behavior in the psychology department at the University of Puget Sound, and that's in Tacoma, Washington. And it is a liberal arts uh, university with um, a focus on teaching, and I have had 
the most wonderful horse-loving students participate in my um, equine research, many of them who have gone on to professional careers with horses. And I'm also uh, an affiliate professor at the University of Washington uh, Animal Behavior Program. So, Dr. Foster, one thing that comes up when we at the horse cover different horse behavior research is um, a reaction of, but we know that about horses, or I already knew that just by being my horse. Can you share with us why it might be important to put research behind what we're doing with our horses? Um, yeah, I think um, we all have a lot of experience, and that experience is valuable. It's really valuable um, and um, needs to be shared. But what science offers is a more objective and systematic um, exploration into behavior in order to um, confirm, um, sometimes confirm what people have, uh, confirm people's experiences, but, but other times it refutes people's experiences and provides a more truthful, if you will, direction for um, uh, understanding horse behavior and interacting with horses. It's not just behavior, it's also how horses think and um, you know, the expression of um, emotions. And that leads us to another reason for um, to value a scientific perspective on equine behavior, and that is that um, it's very easy and tempting to project one's own feelings and knowledge and motivations onto an animal as wonderful and intelligent as a horse. Um, but horse brains are not the same as human brains and horse experiences are not the same as human experiences. And so um, science helps us understand a little bit better um, what the experiences of horses are um, so we have a better perspective on understanding those aspects of their behavior. I know I'm fortunate in my job that I get to read a lot of uh, the research that's done and our coverage and edit things that are coming through. And I know that every once in a while there's a study that comes through on horse behavior that surprises me because it's may the results may be contrary to a long-held belief that I've had. And it makes me look at my horses maybe in a different way and see the world from their perspective a little differently. Do you find that in your looking at the research with the horses? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, I try to be very open-minded even when I've had an experience or a belief um, or, or approach horse behavior from a particular perspective. Um, I try to be open-minded about everybody's position, but um, uh, I think that um, one of the advantages of the scientific perspective is, uh, or the scientific approach in understanding behavior is that, you know, it, it does help sort through um, some of those beliefs that are um, uh, that are false beliefs, in fact. Well, we already have some questions coming in from our live audience, so I want to just tell everyone a little bit of uh, how the format is. Uh, for anyone who's new to our Ask the Horse Lives, uh, we'll be starting with questions that were submitted during registration. There's some great questions. We'll also be responding to your questions that are coming in live. Um, you can just type them in in your console. Our uh, 
we have an editor who's reading those, Alex is reading those and then sending them on to me so that uh, Dr. Foster can answer them as we go along. I think this hour is going to go really, really fast. So let's go ahead and get started. Um, I want to kind of start the conversation, Dr. Foster, with a better understanding of learning theory. I know that's an important part of your research. Can you tell us what learning theory is in a nutshell and how it applies to working with horses? Uh, yeah, great. Um, learning theory has really gotten a lot of attention lately. Um, I think uh, in some ways um, it's a trickle-down effect from Dr. Andrew McLean um, and Dr. Paul McGreevy, uh, who are in Australia and have really spearheaded um, changes in the way that we um, think about and, and train animals from um, uh, to incorporate learning theory um, in that thinking and practice. Um, but that doesn't mean learning theory is new just because it's new to the equine world. In fact, it's um, a very uh, old approach uh, for explaining animal and human behavior that's been around for more than 100 years. Um, in human psychology, it probably achieved its greatest popularity in the 1960s and 70s. So when we think about learning theory, um, it seems like a theory, a singular theory, but in fact it's a very broad, overarching way of, um, of studying and exploring and explaining behavior that is based in science, um, again, and relies on systematic and objective observations and a long history of systematic and objective observations. So um, historically, learning theory was studied primarily in laboratory animals because of the kind of uh, control over um, the environment that uh, was, you know, that that's possible in the lab only in the laboratory. Um, but it has definitely um, those principles and and the perspectives themselves have um, transferred to um, applied work in human psychology, in zoo animal training, in um, dog behavior and training, and uh, now fortunately to horse behavior and training. So, you know, again, I want to emphasize that an important feature of learning theory is that it is scientific in its foundation. Um, another important feature of learning theory is that the principles that um, we use are very general and they have held up across a really wide range of animal species. So, um, you know, when we talk about some building blocks of learning theory like positive reinforcement or punishment or Pavlovian conditioning, what we find is that these general principles um, are very uh, broad and uh, consistent in, um, in the way they operate across species. And so because of that, learning theory provides, it, provides this really useful perspective for both understanding why horses do what they do, but also in um, applying learning theory to trying to change horse behavior, and that might be through training or changing problem behaviors through um, behavior modification. Um, what learning theory is, is um, an emphasis on looking at an individual and how it interfaces with its physical and its social environment. So every individual goes about the world interacting with the environment. Um, for example, every action that an animal has has an effect on the environment. 
for better for worse, and the environment has an effect on the animal for better or for worse. And so, you know, in a nutshell, what learning theory does is um, it has tried to um, um, identify general rules for how the environment impacts individuals and how individuals impact the environment um, and has created a very predictable uh, framework for understanding behavior. Um, I just wanted to add, though, that you know, learning theory is not an end-all, even though it's obviously really useful and, um, and um, productive in, in this effort to uh, explain behavior. It's just one piece. And um, to truly understand what makes a horse tick also requires knowing a lot about how a horse sees the world, what motivates that horse, its past history, and the range of behaviors that can express. So it means knowing a lot about horses, um, as well as the principles underlying this, um, this area of, of uh, theory. Now, you mentioned uh, positive reinforcement and punishment. Um, before we dive into everyone's questions, I, I think it might be helpful for everyone to understand uh, the differences between positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, and punishment, because I know that those terms can get a little foggy. Uh, can you give, can you share with us what, what each of those means? Yeah, I'll give it a shot. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, it's truly unfortunate. I'm just going to start by saying it's truly unfortunate that B.F. Skinner, the father of behaviorism, adopted these terms because they are confusing for everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been at conferences where people who should know better even get them wrong sometimes. And these are the basic building blocks. And it's, it's kind of sad that um, there's a, a hiccup at the very you know, start of understanding learning theory, at the very foundation. So um, um, I will give it a shot. And I'll try to keep it simple and maybe explain these um, processes as well as I can. So oftentimes these principles, um, which include positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, positive punishment, and negative punishment, um, these are called the four quadrants of learning. And they are um, processes by which um, behavior is affected by its consequences. So in, in these four different um, processes, um, behavior acts on the environment in some way and has a different consequence. And, and so you have four different possible outcomes. And those are the four outcomes. So I just want to start with kind of the foundation terms that probably will make the most sense to people. Um, the term reinforcement is all that means is that the behavior gets stronger. Okay, so when a behavior is reinforced, that behavior increases. It's more likely to occur in the future. And that action is repeated because it leads to something pleasant for the horse. So that's reinforcement. If the action leads to something pleasant for the horse, it'll be repeated. In contrast, if what the horse does leads to something unpleasant, then it won't be repeated. And this is punishment. And so those are just the, the basic building blocks of reinforcement and punishment and what they are. So no matter what kind of reinforcement we're talking about, 
it's because what the horse did led to something pleasant. And no matter what kind of punishment we're talking about, it's because what the horse did led to something unpleasant and it's not going to do it again. <laughs> so, so far everyone's probably nodding and thinking this is pretty simple and lawful. And that's because it's the terms positive and negative that create all the confusion. And before I jump into this, I want to start by saying that learning theory is a science and these terms were meant to be mathematical symbols, plus and minus signs. They were not meant to be descriptive qualities synonymous with good and bad. And I think in many cases that's where part of the confusion lies is when we hear the, posi the terms positive and negative, it sounds like we're talking about good reinforcement and bad reinforcement. But in mm -hmm. fact, they don't mean that at all. They're mathematical and what they mean is that um, something is added, a plus sign, or something is taken away, a minus sign. And so sometimes um, when I've taught this in class before, um, clarifying that point helps um, reduce the confusion for some people. So um, I just want to talk a little bit and focus on what that might mean with reinforcement in particular because positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement are the two um, uh, kind of uh, approaches to training that seem to get the most attention in the horse world. And so again, let me just repeat that with both of these kinds of reinforcement, we're trying to increase some behavior and have the horse repeat it again. And, and so that means that with reinforcement, it's because that the action leads to something pleasant. And this can happen in two ways. And one is because what the horse did added something good. That's the plus sign. That would be positive reinforcement. And the other way is because what the horse did removed something that was kind of annoying. And that's the negative sign. And that's going to be negative reinforcement. So I'm just going to use examples to help illustrate those two. So clicker, gaining, uh, clicker training is um, a training technique that's gaining a lot of popularity in, um, in horse training. And it is based primarily on positive reinforcement. And so what this means is that the horse is going to repeat a behavior because it re results in something good, and that's usually some food. So for example, the horse will touch her nose to a target and a treat is added, positive reinforcement. Um, traditional horse training, on the other hand, is based primarily on negative reinforcement or pressure release. And that's because in order to use negative reinforcement, pressure is applied and the pressure is a little bit annoying. So for example, pressure might be applied to the reins with a little rein tension, and then when the horse halts, the pressure is released. It's subtracted. And that creates a more pleasant situation for the horse, that release of pressure. So that's going to be negative reinforcement. So um, uh, those two are what you're going to read about primarily with horses. Um, these same constructs apply to punishment with positive punishment and negative punishment. And um, I think this might actually be a good time to stop because <laughs> Usually if I go through that again with punishment, I can lose people in discussion. So, Michelle, I don't know. Do you want me to continue the discussion with punishment with examples or kind of stop I there? think 
I think we can jump into some of these questions that we okay. have um, and, and then maybe circle around back to it um, if it okay. comes up in any of our questions. Um, so we have a question from Lisa in British Columbia, and she wants to know what are the most common under saddle and in hand conflict behaviors in which you're asked to consult on? Um, yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, so I guess I would start by saying that um, conflict behavior is a really interesting term and unfortunately by the time I see horses with behavior problems they're usually well beyond showing most conflict behaviors and they're you know full-fledged into escape and uh, escalated escape and avoidance behavior uh, fight and flight responses that have safety implications for the owners and riders um, so I don't know that, I mean, there's still conflict behaviors, but they're, they're pretty extreme by the time I see them. Um, uh, but nevertheless, some of the behaviors um, that I see on the ground um, tend to be uh, rearing and pulling back while tied. That's a really common one. Um, refusal to load in the trailer. Um, Fear-based behaviors with farriers and veterinary visits like uh, needle shyness or horses that, you know, um, fidget around or kick out um, during a farrier visit. And um, for some many practical reasons, these are the behaviors I see most because they affect the person um, and the horse on a daily basis in a, in a really practical way. Um, under saddle, I see um, a variety of behavior issues. Um, and um, some of these are fear-based, for example, um, horses that, um, uh, that are that shy or are um, reactive or, or bolt um, when they see something on the trail and they, you know, I work with them on desensitization. I also work with uh, horses that are aggressive um, under saddle, maybe biting at the rider, pinning their ears. Um, and I, I think probably the most uh, the problem behavior I see the most in horses under saddle are when horses are unresponsive to rein and leg cues. They either won't go or they won't slow down. And we have a question from our live audience from Dale that I think dovetails nicely with, with that response. Dale wants to know about a horse of his that's at the bottom of the pecking order but that attempts to bite him when he gets on. Do you have any suggestions for how to manage this biting during mounting? Yeah, yeah, I I do. I'm not sure that um, I would link the... Um, horse's status in the herd with the behavior that he's seeing when he's mounting. Um, it's, uh, it seems like a, a distant connection and um, I, f I often find it more um, helpful um, when I'm doing a behavior analysis of a problem to, you know, focus on the um, immediate um, triggers of the behavior, what's the context, when does it occur, uh, does it occur every time um, that he mounts, um, and what the consequences are. So without knowing Dale's um, longer story uh, with he and his horse, um, you know, one of my first, um, anytime I, I like that, one of my uh, first recommendations is to make sure the horse is not experiencing any pain. and. You know, pain is a common problem with horses, back pain, 
um, and uh, poor sat caused by poor saddle fit or you know um, confirmation or riding style or use um, all, all kinds of different reasons um, a horse might be experiencing pain and um, that kind of pain would uh, cause a horse to try to communicate with the rider that they're uncomfortable and that uh, mounting and riding is making them even more uncomfortable. And that kind of communication um, might start with subtle cues. Uh, you know, maybe the horse lifted its head, hollowed its back, you know, in response, flicked its tail. Um, and we as humans are really, really good at ignoring subtle cues and um, forcing animals to tell us in much more dramatic and forceful ways exactly how they're feeling. So, um, uh, Dale, I, I'm not suggesting you did that, but it's a really good point to take home that um, sometimes the, the behaviors, by the time they get extreme like that, um, it's because that that is you know, the horse's best effort at getting its point across. So um, I would look at some reason the horse might be having a an unpleasant experience um, under saddle, and that's going to often show up first right at the mounting block. So then once you look at uh, the horse's comfort level, is there anything that Dale can do with that horse to to help it through this situation if maybe there isn't something uncomfortable or if, if they do find the saddle's not fitting, replace the saddle and the behavior continues. Um, is there an approach to help minimize the behavior? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, obviously you, you want to find out why and, and if you do rule out um, physical discomfort, you can see I'm not, I, I'm so sure it's physical discomfort that I'm having a hard time going forward. But but of course it, it may not be. There can be other reasons um, that, that the horse is acting that way. Um, but with any kind of behavior change, um, one of my first recommendations, and, and I may repeat this again, um, and it's worth repeating, is that you know there are really, it's a two-part solution um, in general. And the first part is don't put your horse in the situation that provokes or aggra aggravates the problem behavior. Um, if possible. And um, that's because uh, every time the horse expresses that behavior, they're um, practicing it and, um, and uh, you know, you haven't really solved it in any way. So that's just if it's possible not to put your horse in that situation. It doesn't necessarily mean that you wouldn't ride that horse, um, but Certainly, um, it might mean that, depending on the approach you take to change the behavior. Um, the second recommendation I would have is I tend to um, prefer a uh, to use what's called systematic desensitization as a method for changing behaviors like this. And um, what systematic desensitization, or, or often just called desensitization, is is where um, you put the horse into the situation um, and uh, and it relaxes. So let's say that uh, Dale would walk uh, his horse up to the mounting block um, and then just start to go through the motions of um, of mounting, saddling, and mounting, and to really look carefully for where you start to see some of those stress-related behaviors. And 
not to go that far. That is, don't press your horse past that point, but rather stop the exercise at that point, let the horse relax, and then very gradually and progressively um, increase uh, what it is that you're doing, progress forward in, in that um, desensitization. So perhaps the next time uh, you go up to the mounting block and you stand there and you put your weight on the horse and then you retract the weight. Um, see if you can um, you know, change the horse's attitude um, through desensitization. And this is particularly effective if the horse is responding more in an anticipation of previous pain or um, you know, some, some other non-reason uh, that's not related to um, actually experiencing pain in the moment. Um, it's also really helpful in some cases to combine desensitization with a process that's called counter-conditioning. And counter-conditioning has a big name, but all it means is try to make this a really fun experience for the horse. Um, so rather than using any kind of corrections or punishment when you go to mount, um, you know, bring out the treats and, and make that experience pleasant and enjoyable for the horse. Um, and a uh, horse cannot be grumpy and happy at the same time. So the, the, one of the goals of counter-conditioning is to create contradictory emotional states um, so that you're more likely to get um, a positive and um, compliant response from the horse. Um, and we, we have a question from Justine in Toronto, uh, and she wants to know if training based on food reward is the most successful. You just mentioned treats in your previous response. Should we be using treats to, to train our horses? Well, yeah, I, you know, people can be, uh, I, I've met many trainers who have very strong opinions one way or the other about using treats. Um, and um, so there are different schools of thought. I, I actually like to use as many different strategies as I can and to be familiar with as many different training approaches as possible. Um, because the best approach uh, depends on the individual horse, it depends on the horse's training history and what's familiar to that horse, um, it depends on the skill of the owner in applying um, the different kinds of approaches to training, um, but I'd have to say that training with food rewards can be very effective, uh, can be very successful, but isn't always the best approach for every horse. So let me just give you an example. This is some research um, that I did uh, with a student, um, uh, Kelsey Wallach, uh, a few years ago where we were doing um, clicker target training uh, for, for a bigger study. And uh, one piece of that study was to look at how quickly um, the horses, different horses, were able to learn to do something very simple for a treat. That was, can you touch your nose to the target to get a treat? And some horses, it's a very simple task, and some horses learned really quickly. And other horses did not learn so quickly. It took them a very long time. And they, you know, in many of those cases, the horses were trying to work out their own strategy. They didn't like our strategy, right? They didn't want to touch the target. They wanted to work out their own solution for getting the treat, like, what if I just push this trainer over a little bit, or, uh, or they would give up. So, um, 
you know, we found a lot of variability in um, the initial success of training and the responses of the horses to the food reward training, even on such a simple task. So uh, the point that I really want to make there is that individual horses are different, and um, just, you know, some people may find that their horse is very responsive to treat reward training and others may find that it's a real challenge to introduce that kind of training with their horse. Um, do I have time to say more about this? Sure. Michelle? Okay, great. I don't want to take up too much. I did want to say that um, regardless of the method, one of the things I wanted to say, method in terms of whether treats are being used or you know, typically the alternative to that, to that is some kind of a pressure release um, training system. The goal of any of this training is actually to communicate effectively with the horse using cues and not to continue using the rewards or the pressure um, regardless of either of which type of training. So, for example, um, let's say that you're using re uh, rain pressure to stop or steer. Uh, the goal of any advanced rider is to have a horse that is feather light on the touch of the reins using a very light tactile cue uh, that really doesn't resemble pressure or anything uncomfortable in any way. Uh, the same goal is true for treat-based training. It's not to stay reliant on the treats, but rather to have a tool for developing a communication, you know, train the behavior and then put it on cue so the horse responds uh, without without the treats in the end. Okay. We have a question from Joyce in South Carolina and Joyce is currently shopping for a trail horse and wants to know what steps she should take to assess the horse's temperament, spookiness, and overall suitability for trail riding. Um, great, yeah. So um, temperament assessment um, is uh, is challenging. <laughs> uh, there are lots of efforts to uh, measure horses' temperament, and even when we have um, temperament assessments that seem very reliable and you know consistent, and and um, show that a horse is bold when they're young is also going to be bold when they're older. Um, a lot of these are really impractical, and we also don't even know what they mean necessarily. Um, in terms of their extension to whether the horse is suitable for this job or that job, uh, including how it responds to challenges on the trail. So I'm a real big fan of making sure that the horse is going to fit your desires and needs and also that you really like the horse, right? That whole relationship thing can be very important in, in terms of um, the long-term success and satisfaction a person has with their horse. Um, but what that really means is I recommend putting, doing a trial where you actually put the horse in some of the challenges. Um, in your case, take the horse for a trail ride, um, preferably in some place that's unfamiliar so you can see how well that horse copes and responds to the challenges on the trail. We have a question from Kathleen in Grants Pass, Oregon, and Kathleen wants to know what you think about keeping an only horse. Do they need companions, and if so, what's the best kind of companion? Right, I think the evidence is pretty overwhelming um, about 
um, horses and having companions. They're highly social animals and um, uh, a recent study, and I think it was just summarized in the horse, uh, maybe even this week. I don't know if you can confirm that. Is that is that right, Michelle? A recent study that showed that horses that are um, that are uh, confined alone show a lot more stress behaviors than horses that are um, um, in in small groups or in herds. Um, I didn't actually read the study; I read the abstract, so uh, I won't be able to share details with you about that, but. Um, it is ideal to have a companion for the horse because they're so social and in general um, humans don't spend that much time with the horse. Even if you have a great relationship, do you spend two or three hours a day with the horse? That would be a lot and that would mean that the horse would be um, essentially isolated for the majority of its life. Um, and that kind of social social isolation can uh, lead to a host of logical veterinarian behavior problems. So, in terms of what companion is best, I think you know a horse companion, a, another individual of the same species, uh, would be my first um, you know, recommendation. But I know that's not always possible. Horses are expensive; they're big; they take up a lot of room. Um, I like goats. I think goats make good companions with horses. Um, some horses have dog friends, but um, I tend to like the the way that horses engage with goats, and and I think that's pretty popular just in the general public too. Um, we have a question from Chris in our live audience, and Chris wants to know what is the best way to manage or prevent separation anxiety. Even though horses are in separate paddocks, they get quite upset, he says, running around and are vocal when they're taken away from each other. Uh, and this herd is a mix of both mares and geldings. How, how do you recommend managing separation anxiety? Yeah, I think separation distress in horses is a, is a real um, problem that doesn't at this point have a satisfying solution in all cases. Um, so I've worked with a number of cases of separation distress and I suppose I probably should have listed that earlier when talking about the kind of uh, case um, behavior issues that I frequently see. Um, there are different causes of separation distress but um, and and different horses kind of uh, respond differently to separation so um, usually you can identify horses that are going to show pretty serious problem behaviors when they're separated um, whereas others don't uh, those problem behaviors are generally most intense if that horse has a single companion and is left isolated um, in some way. And um, that's not always the case. The isolation is not always the case, but it's frequently the case. So some solutions that have worked for me are changing companions. Sometimes horses do better if they're just with a different friend that they are perhaps less attached to. Um, and uh, that has worked really well again in some cases. Um, another uh, possible solution is to, if, if it's possible, is to add more horses to the group so that um, the 
horse that experiences the distress is rarely, rarely if ever, actually left alone. And sometimes I've even recommended bringing along a horse that nobody ever rides and including that in the group so that um, that horse that experiences distress really is never left alone. Uh, another possible solution is um, a more progressive separation, but that is very effortful and time-consuming and has mixed effectiveness. And that would be um, a solution, for example, where you'd remove the um, uh, the horse and and leave the the horse that experiences distress in the paddock. Um, and when you, before you remove the uh, the companion you might, for example, throw some hay or offer some food so that the removal of the companion actually predicts that something great is going to happen and that's food. A lot of horses, <laughs> they won't eat, right? They're just too distressed. So does it work for every horse? No, but there are a few, right? There are a few for whom that works. Um, it's not a bad idea anyways. And then you you gradually increase how long the companion horse is removed for and how far away they're removed to. So at first, maybe within sight. It, that is a very, again, like I said, effortful, time-consuming, and um, has mixed success. And so I really generally try to work with people to, to work out uh, different arrangements for um, companions and who's together and and finding better fits. So I have three horses and I typically will take one and leave two behind. I try to never leave one uh, by themselves at home. Um, and I find that taking different horses gets a different reaction from the ones that are left behind. Uh, one of them really gets upset if he's left behind. Um, one, she doesn't really care that much but enough to get excited with, with who's a, whoever's with her. Um, but my husband has reported that as soon as I'm gone with the one horse, the other two usually give up on being upset, and it's not until I return that they're all riled up again. And I had thought that they were worried the whole time I was gone. I was, I was concerned that they were stressed and going to hurt themselves when I wasn't there. But then I find out that I leave and everyone settles down, and then I return with the horse, and then everyone's excited again. Is that something that's typical that horses do, or is it kind of out of sight, out of mind? No, and, and I actually love that you um, added that example, Michelle. I was, I was trying to be kind of expedient, but the, the truth is that um, every time that I look at one of these cases, right, I do basically a behavior analysis to find out just that kind of information because every case is a little bit different and every individual is different. And what you said is common, but it's not true in every situation. Sometimes the horses that are left behind will not relax and it is a real welfare issue for those horses. They might, um, I've seen horses, you know, try to dig to China, right? They're actually trying to dig under the fence and they, you know, they dig three foot holes practically um, trying to uh, rejoin their um, departed companion. Um, and of course, many of them are also fence running and, you know, very physically stressed and not eating and not drinking the whole time the companion's gone. In other horses, it is really um, if they are out of communication range, and that would be the contact call, right? And if you 
you all know what I mean if you've had horses. You know, once they get into vocal range, they might start calling each other. And then, you know, as soon as one of them hears it, you get the calling back and forth. So once they're in vocal contact range, then you might start to see, or, or out of it, that might be the point where the agitation starts and stops, that they're, you know, excited and, and um, uh, when they're in range and then uh, not when they're out of range. And that is common. So, you know, might look for that um, before putting too much energy into the whole process if, in fact, it's a very transient um, problem. We have a question from Patricia in Maple Valley, Washington, and she said that one of her horses spooked when she was tied up, and now the mare explodes anytime she's tied. Do you have any recommendations for managing that behavior? Yeah, um, it's dangerous, and every time she explodes, um, it's just uh, making the problem worse because she does experience that frightening event again. Um, so, you know, it's hard to know. Oh, so she was spooked. Okay, so there was a frightening experience, and and um, she had an escape behavior, and that's a very classic example of what's called conditioned fear, learned or conditioned fear. And um, it requires going through, you know, to, to get rid of that really qu requires going through um, some kind of progressive um, extinction program or desensitization. So I'm using those terms interchangeably, but all I mean by that is to get rid of the fear. Um, you have to put the horse in that context without triggering the explosion. So, you know, how do you do that safely? Um, I just use personally some kind of, I, I think they're old-fashioned uh, techniques with that because, you know, one thing I do, for example, is I will, if this was at a hitching post, and I'm going to assume that it was at some kind of post where she was tied, you know, to stand there and supervise the horse and um, do a single loop, for example, around the hitching post and hang on to the other end so that the horse starts to relearn to yield to that pressure without pulling back suddenly and um, you know, exploding again when she feels that pressure and panics. That um, can take a little bit of time. And again, this would be a situation where I might throw in um, some of that counter conditioning and um, helped, help promote the, um, the desensitization by creating a really positive situation when the horse steps forward and offering a treat. Okay. We have a question from Ida in Nigeria and Ida wants to know how you can convince a needle shy horse to not react aggressively through kicking or biting each time they're getting a shot. So this, I have one of these who's super anxious around the vet and um, and you mentioned that this is something that you deal with quite a bit. What recommendations do you have for horse owners of animals that are afraid of the vet and needle shy? Right. Um, so um, needle shyness is a is a real practical problem for veterinarians um, and for owners as well, uh, with obvious safety issues. Um, one of the reasons that needle shyness um, is so persistent is that um, the horse only has uh, 
experiences with needles periodically and, and really has no opportunity to learn something new. So the veterinarian comes, there's an injection, and for some reason the ag aggression and, and strong reaction started. We may not know the horse's history, sometimes we do, sometimes we don't, um, but it started through some kind of bad experience um, um, in this veterinary context. It may not seem bad from a human perspective, <laughs> but the experience was bad from the horse's perspective. Um, and so the horse is um, reacting defensively and um, is frightened um, in this context. So most veterinarians, you know, don't have the time to help um, this horse rehabilitate from their needle shy behavior and so it just repeats itself. The veterinarian does the restraint, the horse is frightened, you do the injection, the injection was, um, the whole experience was again pretty traumatic, you know, there was a lot of drama and so there was nothing in that experience to help that horse overcome its fear and change its mind about how frightening being injected is. So what's required in this case is again, I, and I, I hate to repeat this um, process, but I think it's a pretty tried and, tried and tested um, method for um, reducing and eliminating fear-based reactions like this, is um, this combination of don't trigger the, don't, tr don't trigger the reaction. So um, to the extent possible, um, avoid putting your horse in a situation where they're going to be restrained and injected until you have an opportunity to properly desensitize them to um, their needle phobia. And um, that desensitization requires a little bit of time, but it can be very quick. There are a number of methods that can be used for that. Um, there's sort of classic uh, desensitization desensitization and counter conditioning that I've mentioned a couple of times already in this chat and again that might be for a needle shy horse that might involve um, you know how close can you even get to the horse with a needle so you tie them you bring a syringe close you know when does that horse start to show fear and avoidance behaviors and when they do you've gone too far for your first step Right. I'm just going inter to interject my horse. Yeah, it's absolutely. the second the, uh, the vet is at the gate in his <laughs> pickup truck. So. <laughs> right, right. And I have a horse, you know, who it's the farrier, right? The farrier looks at him and he starts twitching and, and stumbling around. So I completely get that. And, and some of these behaviors are really resilient. But I also want to say that I've, I've used this approach and, um, you know, changed a needle-shy horse into a completely relaxed horse in 20 minutes. So it can be a very fast technique or it can be really slow and part of it just depends on you know, how um, long the problem's been going on and how severe the phobia is. And, and in all honesty, um, there's also some evidence um, in the scientific literature that horses that have, um, gosh I hate to use this term for horses, but you know that that have underlying anxiety problems um, might be more um, resistant to the desensitization techniques um, and, and just take a little bit longer. So I don't know if this horse 
does have an anxiety issue underlying and would take a little longer, but it's definitely worth doing the desensitization. Um, I'm actually offering a um, uh, workshop and practicum, an online course and practicum uh, with my colleague Lauren Fraser um, later this summer um, specifically on needle shyness and, um, and other fears and phobias in horses and, and how to use these processes to, to quickly and effectively um, change these dangerous behaviors. So we have a question from our live audience and we only have about eight minutes uh, okay. left in our broadcast. Um, but we have a question from Tim and he wants to know if how you can tell if a horse is truly bonded with you. What, what are some signs? And what does that mean? Right. Um, so uh, the whole issue of horse-human relationships is fascinating. It, it really is. And it, it's definitely one of those topics that's outside the purview of learning theory, which is, you know, explaining horse behavior um, and not necessarily explaining all the intricacies of the relationship between humans and horses. Um, but um, a, a current approach that's been used to um, study attachment um, has borrowed techniques from human psychology looking at bond, strength of bond and attachment between um, parents and their children and also between um, uh, friends and, and other individuals um, that, uh, that seems to be showing some promise. Um, so a few of these, uh, a few of the, the the principles that are most important are, you know, how does the horse respond to you when you approach? Um, is the horse, um, you know, does it tend to be neutral? Does it tend to turn away from you and walk away? Uh, that may not actually be a measure of bond, but it might be the fact that you actually had the farrier out the day before. Um, or it does a horse approach you, you know, so kind of on the whole, not, not in, on any one day, but on the whole, um, is that horse seeking um, contact with you? Um, does the, is the horse tend to be resistant or responsive to your efforts to engage with it? Um, that's obviously really important as well. Um, um, one of the things that, um, Oh, what was I going to say? I've lost what I was going to say, Michelle. Um, a really important element of that bond um, and deciding if it's strong um, involves um, uh, looking at um, the, uh, oh, what's the right word? The, uh, um, the sense of, um, I'm going to, I'm sorry, Michelle, I'm stumbling on this one. That's um, okay. Please, please jump in. Please jump in, and I'm going <laughs> to try to come up with that. Um, well, let's go ahead and, and get to another question uh, before okay. we, we end tonight. Um, and this is in your area of research. Uh, Carolyn is in British Columbia, and she wants to know what are some early signs of stress in therapy horses. And I'm interested in this because I managed a therapy herd for, for about five years, and it was really interesting watching horses and how they reacted to the stress of their daily work. So what are some of those signs? Um, yeah, so uh, a lot of my research had to do with um, 
of retention of therapy horses. And so the idea was often when those horses were identified as having um, experiencing stress or um, having you know maybe a little bit of burnout in in the program, it was actually too late. And um, so identifying early signs of stress was part of that goal of if intervention could happen early, um, could these horses be recovered? And of course, there's so much investment in therapy horses, um, financial and time to get them prepared to do the jobs that they do. Um, that you know, being able to intervene early and keep that horse is is a, a critical um, of critical importance. So. Um, the kind of stress behaviors that the horses show differ from horse to horse, which was really um, an interesting finding. So we're not seeing just one behavior appear. Um, and that's, I think, just a simple explanation that what stresses the horses out differs from horse to horse. And the way that they express their um, distress um, also differs. But, you know, basically looking for expression of some um, pretty uh, benign but um, persistent and constant um, conflict or stress-related behaviors is the most important thing. So when the horse comes into the, the class either to be ridden or to be handled by, um, by the riders or the clients, um, does does the horse show any stress behaviors like pinning its ear and how often and how many and for how many classes pinning its ears, um, you know, swishing its tail, um, showing stress in its eyes, um, you know, showing tension in its mouth, especially when being handled um, or, or ridden. And um, of course, anything more than that starts to become dangerous. Um, so I would look for those signs. I'd also look for shutting down. You know, therapy horses are nice horses. They really are. You know, we pick the nicest horses to do those jobs. And so many of them um, adopt a coping strategy where instead of acting out, they actually internalize the stress. And um, what you'll see is that they'll just shut down a little bit and that can result in kind of inattention, slowness to respond to signals, um, sluggishness, um, and those to me were um, easier to ignore because there was nothing obvious and potentially um, problematic in terms of the welfare for the animal. And I am going to try to sneak one more question in here uh, okay. before before we end, and because it's the, I think a question a lot of us have had, and this is from Caitlin in our live audience, and she wants to know how you would recommend engaging a distracted horse that's inattentive when you're handling it on the ground. Right, right. So I work with those horses a lot, and it happens. I'll tell you, one place it really happens is when horses are being lunged mm -hmm. and, you know, they'll get into the, especially especially free lunging, but sometimes, you know, and the horse will just go round and round and round at the end of that lunge line or in the round pen and you'll see its head is kind of turned outside, you know, and it is completely inattentive uh, to to the person, you know, very happily standing in the middle of the ring thinking that they, they've got this great lunging horse that you know, holds it holds a gate, but the horse is paying no attention. Mm -hmm. So um, one thing, well, first of all, 
again, I would ask the question, you know, what's going on and why isn't this horse paying attention? And if you have any insights into that, that can really help um, come up with um, possible solutions for the problem. But in general, um, what I like to do is um, uh, do, you know, frequent changes in the activity to keep the horse engaged and to make sure that what you're doing is not uh, either too hard or too easy for that horse. Um, some horses, you know, they can become inattentive when they are completely unchallenged by the task, right? And you can lose attention and you can uh, lose interest and performance goes down. And they can also become inattentive when they're overwhelmed with a chat task. Um, there's a, a very well-known um, model about attention and performance called the Yerkes-Dodson model. And it shows that very, um, very clear relationship that, you know, finding the right challenge to the task can affect attention and performance greatly. Um, so, you know, that's one thing. But the other thing is to make sure to mix up the task. Don't, you know, don't stay on the same rote pattern for too long. Uh, we, as humans, sometimes like to get into routines and follow the same pattern. But, of course, that kind of repetitiveness can, um, you know, you can lose the horse's attention with that because it is repetitive and, and overly familiar. So those are just two suggestions that I have for for keeping their attention. Okay. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Foster, for for joining us tonight and answering these questions and explaining um, some of this learning theory stuff for all of us uh, who are out working with our horses every day. We appreciate you being here. Uh, you're welcome, and it was really my pleasure. Thank you, Michelle. And thank you to everyone who joined us tonight. Uh, thank you for sending in questions ahead of time and during the live event. Um, until next time, I'm Michelle Anderson for thehorse.com. For all, from all of us here, have a great night.